All right, let's let's uh, start just for a minute. Now we could we could you know this is excruciating for me for us to have four sessions on Second Corinthians today. So we want to use our time well, but I do want to give you a minute to uh, to interact. Good questions uh, at the break. So we'll uh, let me just see if you have a question or two. Um, if the rabbit that comes in the room gets too big, I'm going to shoot it. But uh, but we're. We're, we'll take just a minute to do that, and then we're going to move to this first movement of the book to try to get big picture and then zero in on uh, one passage that will give us just kind of feed our soul a bit, if you will, uh, as we deal with this uh, first part of the book. All right, do you have a question or two that you would like to, to raise? A question or two on the introduction, the backdrop of the book, and feel free, uh, feel free to do that. Anybody have a question? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yes, you have uh, various ways that that is laid out, but you have previous letter to First Corinthians. You have First Corinthians. You have the sorrowful letter that he sends in between First and Second Corinthians, and then you have Second Corinthians. Yeah. Only in only in the letters of First and Second Corinthians. That's how we know about those other two letters is because they're referred to. So if, read the beginning of 2 Corinthians 2, and he talks about his, his letter there. Interesting language. He says that he wrote that sorrowful letter. For him, it was, my translation reads, it was gut-wrenching. He wrote it through a veil of tears. And uh, we'll talk about that in a, in a bit. All right? Another question? Okay, I want you to uh, think with me as we begin this next session about the issue of perspective, the issue of perspective. Uh, June 6, 1994, was the 50th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy, which started, you know, historic World War II battle to liberate continental Europe from the Nazis. All the major television networks on this anniversary ran uh, programs in which they were interviewing aging veterans, and those aging veterans were talking about their specific experiences of this battle in particular. One of the programs paired two contrasting interviews back-to-back, which were fascinating. The first interview was with a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach, He recalled the horrors that sounded like scenes from Steven Spielberg's Academy Award-winning movie, Saving Private Ryan. The aging veteran recalled looking around at the bloody casualties all around him on the beach, just people dying everywhere. And his response, just he kept saying over and over in his own mind, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. But the next interview was with a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot who had flown over the whole battle scene, the whole battle area. He viewed the carnage on the beaches and the hills, but he also witnessed the successes of Marines, the penetration by paratroopers, and the effectiveness of aerial bombardments in the battle, and he looked at everything that was happening spread out in front of him as a pilot, and he said the thought that kept going over and over and over again in my mind was, we're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. 
I don't know about you, but uh, I have had times in my ministry. I am a professor at a university, but I also helped plant a church that I then co-pastored for 10 years, uh, preached on a regular basis, was very involved in pastoral care and counseling and that type of thing. Uh, and as I think back to times uh, in my life, there are moments that I would describe as pretty brutal emotionally. Uh, times when maybe I was struggling with self-doubt because of uh, how I'd handled situation or somebody who did not understand what I was trying to do or trying to accomplish. And maybe uh, there was a difficulty in the church and I felt like somebody was trying to put the blame on me, that kind of thing. You've probably never had those kind of experiences, have you, in ministry? Yeah, you all have, I know. But when you're in the middle of that, when you're in the middle of the, the fight, if you will, and you are feeling beat up emotionally, it's very easy for that dark cloud to cover backwards and call a question in your mind on everything that you've done in ministry and also make you fear the future. Um, it, just, it just warps your perspective. Now, what Paul does in the beginning of 2 Corinthians is something beautiful. He sets the tone of this really difficult ministry moment by focusing attention on the Lord, drawing attention to some theological truths that are foundational for him. And, I, and you'll notice, we won't get to see a lot of these today, but you'll notice as you read through 2 Corinthians, Paul keeps coming back to an image of what I call posture before God. So you get to chapter 2, verse 17, where he, he talks about the false teachers, but he says, we are coming from a perspective of sincerity. We are uh, sincere in the way we speak, and we are sent from God, and we live out our ministry before God and in Christ. And that, he comes back to that over and over and over again. That is the grounding for him and who he is. And that posture of, of living out his life and his ministry before God, God's his primary audience, really then works its way out into the way that he thinks about ministry and the way that he does ministry. Think about the contrast with the false teachers. They're living out their ministry before people. They're judging everything about their ministry in terms of how public response is going at the moment. And isn't it true that in some ways for us as ministers, if we are not careful, our salvation starts to be how people respond to our preaching on Sunday morning. You know, our, our validation, if you will, of if we're okay and who we are as, as people. We've got to be very, very careful of that. Paul keeps the perspective focused, really focused on he is living all this out as being sent from God and living out before God and in his relationship with Christ. And that's hugely important. And that's how he starts our book. So what I want to do here in um, this session is I want to talk just a little bit about how this first movement of the book lines out and then come back to a, uh, a more narrow focus on the very beginning of 
the book. So let's uh, let's start by looking at the structure. You might want to look at your um, structure that you have. You have the whole outline of the book there at the beginning of your handout. So take a look um, at that and follow along with me as we consider this first section that runs from 1-1 through 2-13. And let me just talk about this um, just a bit. All right, Paul begins with a, what I would call a letter opening and a prologue. You have a, a normal standard letter opening that Paul has shaped Christianly in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, Christian letters had a particular shape and form. For instance, um, in the Greco-Roman world, if you were giving people greetings, um, you would use the word karain, you would greet them, but Paul and other Christians shaped that karain into kares, grace, grace and shalom, grace and peace. So kind of a, a Christian a Jewish uh, introduction there. So he has the letter opening. Then in 3 through 11, he goes into a prologue. And in his prologue, uh, he is going to do two things. He's going to start with that focus on God. He's going to praise God for his encouragement and move right into his recent deliverance in verses 8 through 11. Now, um, there's a debate about whether 8 through 11 should be the beginning of the, the primary introduction to the book. But I think this, uh, that 8 through 11 fit very well with verses 3 through 7. They fit together structurally. But uh, what he's doing is he's focusing uh, on this beautiful praise of God. And then he's going to draw the Corinthians in by saying, let me tell you about what's been going on with me. Maybe this will help explain some of the decisions that I've made. So he goes in and he talks about this really, really difficult moment. Now, as he moves into uh, 112 and following, he's moving into really the heart of the book because now he's, he's defending the integrity of his ministry. In verses 12 through 14, you have what is probably the thesis for the book where he says, look, we conduct our ministry with absolute integrity. What you see is what you get. You don't have to try to read between the lines with what I'm writing you. Uh, what we do is wide open. It's wide open. And so he talks about um, his integrity there. And then he moves into a section all the way through 2.13 where he explains why he changed his plans. Now this shows it must have been a really big deal. Must have been a really big deal uh, for some people in the Corinthian community that Paul had changed his plans. Uh, because he goes here at the beginning of the book into extensive explanations on why he did that. And he's going to carry that through uh, 2.13. And then he's going to pick up with a theological treatment on uh, the integrity of his ministry, what authentic ministry looks like in 2.14 and following, which we'll look at in the next section. So let's go back and let's talk a bit about the prologue of the book. Let's go back and look at... Uh, these verses that we have here in the beginning. And you read along in your translation. I'm going to uh, read you my translation, the, the commentary that's out there. 
has uh, my, my translation in it. Uh, as part of that commentary series. We, we did our own. So uh, <clears throat> you can call this the Guthrie True Translation uh, here. No, I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> all right, here, here we go. Let's read, uh, let's read verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and our brother Timothy, to God's church in Corinth, along with all the saints throughout Achaia. See that? So he's, he's dealing with a, a broader church there. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the compassionate Father and the God who offers every possible encouragement. He encourages us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to encourage those experiencing any affliction with the encouragement by which we ourselves are encouraged by God. Because just as the sufferings of Christ spill over toward us, to the same degree, through Christ, our encouragement overflows. Now, whether we are afflicted, it is for your encouragement and salvation, or if we experience the encouragement that follows the affliction, both result in your encouragement, which is at work as you endure the same kinds of sufferings that we suffer. Indeed, our hope for you is resolute, knowing that as you share our experience of suffering, so also you share our experience of encouragement. Now, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to take lightly the tremendous affliction that happened to us in Asia, that we were oppressed to an extraordinary degree beyond our ability to deal with the situation so that we experienced deep despair to the point that we thought we were going to die. Yet we ourselves had this verdict of death in ourselves in order that we might not trust in ourselves, but rather in God who raises the dead. He rescued us out of such horrible brushes with death, and he will rescue us. That is, we have placed our hope in him that he also will deliver us in the future as the need arises. You also joining in helping us through prayer. Then many people will give thanks to God on our behalf for the gift given to us through the cooperation of many. Okay, let's talk about uh, this wonderful, wonderful section of scripture here just for a few minutes and see if we can get uh, a sense of what's going on. Uh, Paul begins in verse 3 with talking about God as compassionate and encouraging. He is the compassionate, encouraging God. Now, given what he has recently experienced, it's no wonder that he focuses on that experience of affliction and request prayer. He does that here in the book. But this benediction has a rhetorical purpose as well. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand his experiences that he's been going through as he has been traveling around the Mediterranean world. And yet, in spite of all the things that he's been experiencing, as difficult as it has been, 
he begins this difficult letter in a real difficult point in his life with praising God. And I think that's really significant. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this follows a Jewish formula. It was common in Judaism to bless God, to bless God. You have this idea in Hebrew, it's barakah, it's uh, it's uh, the idea of blessing. And in many of the Jewish prayers of the day, uh, you have, for instance, the 18 uh, benedictions or blessings. And each of the blessings start out, blessed are you, O Lord. And then they go through these these blessings. Uh, one blessing says, blessed are you, O Lord, that I was not born a Gentile. You know, that, that kind of blessing. But it was a very common aspect of Judaism of the day. But I think more importantly, Paul draws on Old Testament scripture. Um, if you go back and you look at this idea of blessing and then blessing God, praising God for something, you find this all over the place in the scriptures. The prayers of Genesis or First Kings, uh, especially the Psalms, you have this blessing of God. And so in, in starting with blessing, Paul is able to focus his emotions in this, in this moment and experience where the focus ought to be, God's perspective and how God is using what God is doing in this really significant moment. You and I know, as we look back on our lives, that often it is the, the crucible moments, the difficult moments in which God is really shaping us in terms of our relationship with him and our character and even our understanding of ministry, right? Um, my daughter is a sophomore at Union right now, and uh, she is art and honors, which are two of the hardest majors in terms of just time. It's, it's massive, and she's been having, uh, she's doing well in school, but she's, she's had one experience this semester that has just been really difficult. And I thought back to uh, a couple of months ago. My wife and I were, were uh, just talking through things with her Sunday night, and she was, she was just crying, and she was clear that God was doing massive things in her life. She was really clear on that. She, she said, I know God is working in this situation and is shaping me. But I thought back to about two months ago, I was praying for her, and the, the prayer that I was consistently praying uh, was, Lord, um, with Anna, I pray that you would take her deeper in her relationship with you. And it's almost as if the Spirit of God whispered to me, uh, you do know what that's going to mean, right? Because you don't, you don't go deeper with the Lord without facing difficulties, pruning where God is, is dealing with us. And so what Paul does is he praises God. He has the perspective of blessing God in the midst of this situation. And it follows the pattern of the psalmist, if you think about it, where the psalmist is, is um, in this lament. And the, all of the laments except one go down into this deep place of being honest with God about how hard life is. And all of them but one then turn to worship. One of the things we need to do in our churches is we need to teach people to worship in lament. Uh, when we were doing Read the Bible for Life at our church, we, 
uh, were reading through the Bible in a year, and each Sunday we would preach from a passage that everybody in the congregation had read in their daily, daily Bible reading that previous week. And we were preaching passages on Sunday from that section. So when we got to Lamentations, do you know we had a lament service? I mean, we, we uh, had a service in which it started out with us being very honest about the brutality of the world. We were lamenting the dying of brothers and sisters in persecuted parts of the country. But we also had people come forward who had cancer, who were facing financial devastation. And we were crying out to God and saying, God, this is really hard. We don't like where we are right now, but Lord, we are yours. And then the service turned to praise and worship and and just culminated in really focusing on the Lord and, and making sure that we were grounded in God being the focus and not the problems. Because that's what lament does. It helps you work through the problems, be very honest with them but then come to a place where you've really resolutely turned your attention to the Lord. And so what Paul's doing here is so biblical. It is uh, beautifully, beautifully biblical as he declares God as blessed because he has experienced God's consolation and encouragement in the midst of these difficulties. Notice that it's God the Father who he's addressing and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when the wheels would have come off the bus for just Jews who were not Messianic Jews. Uh, they were used to prayers blessing God the Father. But when Paul takes the next step uh, and in the same breath praises the Lord Jesus Christ, that's, that's a Christian prayer. I mean, he's, he is confessing that the Lord Jesus is on the throne of the universe and that he is living all of this stuff out. Uh, in front of Jesus. You're going to find in 2 Corinthians that, it, that the book is profoundly Christologically oriented. It keeps coming back to a focus on Jesus as the exalted Lord of the universe. He's praising God as Father and he praises God as compassionate. And this term is used uh, about 30 times in the Greek Old Testament and five times in the New Testament. Um, Often it is in the plural as it is here. And it, cons- it, it communicates the idea of, of pity and mercy and compassion. And I want you to think about your own situation just for uh, a minute. Um, and think about how you think God is thinking about you when you are in the midst of the real difficult stuff that you're dealing with. Do you, is your impulse to think of God as a, a, a father who has pity? A father who has pity. Or is your impulse like mine is a lot of times? That man, God must be saying, would you suck it up? You are so spiritually immature to be handling this situation this way. The other night uh, when we were dealing with Anna, I just pulled her into my lap and I just hugged on her, kissed her. You know, I didn't pull her in my lap and say, look, now girl, you're an adult now. It's time to suck it up. Quit these tears. Quit this crying. Didn't do like that. And Paul is praising God because God is a, is a, is a God of mercy and pity. He, he has compassion on us. 
He has followed us all the way down into the suffering of this world and died in the person of his son. So he knows what suffering is like. And that is so comforting, isn't it? To know that he is a father of compassion. He is a father of compassion. As we face harsh circumstances in life, we may be tempted to doubt God's attention, feeling as if he's abandoned us to our difficulties, but he has not. I want to say that to you this morning, that if you are in the midst of real hard difficulties, God cares about what you are going through. And then he also offers encouragement. Now, to be honest, when I got to this point in my translation, I struggled with this. I grew up uh, memorizing the New American Standard version, which came out in the 70s, about the time I was coming alive spiritually. And, um, and I love that translation, the God of all comfort. Let me tell you why I've translated this word a little bit differently. The word could be used with the sense of comfort. It is at places in the Greco-Roman world. And it's translated that way almost universally by modern translations. But it, it can carry the sense of an act of emboldening another in belief or their course of action. Or you're encouraging someone. So you're not just giving consolation. You're not just comforting. You're, you're, you're comforting in a way that you're helping them turn to the future and be encouraged to get up and keep going. You know, giving them boldness to... To kind of keep moving in that situation. Uh, There are places in the book where it could be translated comfort. But that same word, uh, when it's used in places like chapter 8, verse 4, chapter 8, verse 17. The only translation that's appropriate is this idea of encouragement. So there are other places in the book where Paul clearly uses the word with this idea of encouragement. David Garland, who is a very good commentary writer on Second uh, Corinthians and other books, he, uh, he says this about the sense of comfort uh, in this passage. He says, The comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with languorous feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. And so when Paul comes and he praises God as the God of all encouragement, he's saying, look, all of these difficult situations I faced out here, every time I face a difficulty like this, God the Father, God the compassionate Father comes to me and God encourages me to get up and keep going. He helps me through the moment. There is comfort there, obviously. But God is a God of all encouragement. So again, as we face crushing discouragement in our day-to-day ministries, we need to live in benediction To the Lord. Keep our focus on Him. Praise Him. Embrace the encouragement that He brings to us. So the first point is that God is a compassionate, encouraging God there in 1-3. The second point has to do with the affliction Paul is in. And his idea is that the affliction we face is 
purposeful. You see this in verses 4 through 6. So God comes and he offers encouragement. Uh, Theologian uh, Soren Kierkegaard says this, When one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, Away with that man, he does not deserve to live. Know that this is the Christianity of the New Testament. Capital punishment is the penalty for preaching Jesus as he truly is. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? What he's saying is that sooner or later, we are going to be in a situation in which our values, our worldview as Christians, our commitment to Jesus as Lord of the universe is going to be so at odds with the culture in which we live that there's only one outcome. And the outcome is we're going to come up against forces that say you have no place in this society. And one of the interests, I think we are in a fascinating moment in our cultural development here in Western culture. Fascinating moment because we are post-Christian. There's never been a time in church history where you had a massive culture in the world, massive Western culture, having been Christian and then become post-Christian. Never have had that before. So we're trying, we're having to navigate what it means to be people who live in a post-Christian culture. And I was listening to a speaker on the way up here yesterday. Pat and I were listening to the person. And he was talking about the fact that we have, we're going to have to think about how we reach people with the gospel differently. Because, you know, the methods that, that we, many of us grew up on. I mean, listen, guys, back in the 70s, I went to a brush arbor meeting in West Tennessee. Went to tent revival meetings every summer, that kind of thing. And, what, and the point this person was making is a lot of the evangelism methods that we have used in the past have been methods that assume the person we were talking to already knew a lot of the basics of what we were talking about. And we now are in a post-Christian culture where that is no longer the understanding of common people that we're going to run into. And so in that kind of situation, do not be surprised that we have people in the culture, powerful people. I saw an article this week that said scientists uh, at, you know, university professors like me who have, uh, well, I won't go into that, uh, you know, scientists are, are dealing with the question Is Christianity a disease that needs to be healed? Did you see that? And that shouldn't surprise us. Because the culture, when you're dealing with real cultural Christianity and not an acculturated Christianity, it's just kind of being shaped by the culture, it is so contrary to certain values that certain people are going to say, this is just not acceptable. We can't live with it. And so... What Paul is doing here is he is saying we've got to keep these afflictions that we face as we experience the difficulties in the culture, as we're trying to take the gospel forward. We need to understand that these are being used by God. They're purposeful. Uh, It's not that when I am... uh, you know, facing persecution and difficulties that I've somehow gotten off a track, off track. Now that can happen. I can be stupid and bring things on myself as a minister. But what he's saying is that the, the normal difficulties that we face as we are carrying forth the gospel in the world, God 
uses those. He turns them inside out. Look at the passage again, beginning at verse 4. He encourages us in all our afflictions so that, purpose, purpose, so that we might be able to encourage those experiencing any affliction with the encouragement by which we ourselves are encouraged by God. So one of the purposes as we face affliction and difficulties is we then have the ability out of that experience of affliction and difficulty to turn around and offer encouragement to others who are in the middle of that discouraging moment. One of the most encouraging things to me with the ministry in China and in Israel is to see churches that are so marginalized in their culture. I mean, they are pushed to the edge of their culture. And, and their joy is just unbelievable. So, for instance, when I was with those brothers and sisters in China, some of whom have been harshly persecuted, and they just have joy in the Lord, and, and they have perspective on going through those kind of trials, it just, it just blessed me. And last year when I was with the Arab and Jewish brothers, uh, some of these Arab guys are getting it from both sides. They get it from uh, Muslims and they're getting it from, uh, actually from three sides, from Christians um, who are not of their kind of Christianity and they're getting it from the Jewish government at times. And we would be out in the, in the uh, open uh, snack area and three of these Arab guys just, just broke into song, singing a, song, a psalm in Arabic. I mean, just out of their joy. And, and that has been very encouraging to me. <clears throat> a few years ago, I, um, you know, we had the tornado back in 2008 <clears throat> at Union. caused $45 million worth of damage. And in the aftermath of that, I was the main person who was acting as the liaison with the families who had a child in the hospital. So there were about nine families to begin with, and and that kind of got down to about three or four who were very seriously injured. And one of the uh, students who was very seriously injured was a young lady. She was an MK. She had had a crush injury where her chest had been crushed by a falling wall. And so she had a chest tube to get the fluid out of her uh, lung and out of her thorax. And, and uh, we were sitting in the hospital, and I was able to talk her through the situation because just a, a couple of years earlier, I had fallen off a ladder and had injuries to my middle and my thorax, and I had had a chest tube. And so we were able to talk through the situation. And, you know, she said, is it going to hurt when they pull it out? And I was able to say, well, this, this is what it's going to feel like. It's going to be over with like that. She and I created a Facebook group called I Have Had a Chest Tube. I think we were the only two members ever, but... But we had that group because of the common experience that we had of having a chest tube. Uh, when we face the difficulties that we face, <clears throat> the Lord uses that to minister 
to other people. In verse 5, because just as the sufferings of Christ spill over toward us, to the same degree through Christ, our encouragement overflows. I'm sorry? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Paul is speaking. That's a good way to put it. Paul is speaking about empathy here. Um, But it's also a form of empathy, again, that is also encouraging. Because as you're working with that other person, you are helping them have hope about the future. All right. So in verse five, um, when he is talking about the situation, he speaks about the sufferings of Christ. Now, one thing that you're going to see in Second Corinthians, uh, there was talk in Judaism about the, the sufferings of the Messiah and that kind of thing. Um, but one thing that you see is Paul keeps saying that the pattern of suffering that we face in ministry makes perfect sense in the nature of authentic Christian ministry because we're following the pattern of Christ. Uh, he suffered. His pattern of ministry was persecution and suffering. And therefore, as we suffer, we are very much following in his footsteps. That's normal. That's normal ministry. And, and the reality is, in much of church history, that has been normal ministry. That things have not been easy. But he says, as those sufferings overflow to us, they, the word is the word he uses often in this book to speak, speak of things that are overflowing, they're super abundant. Uh, same terminology is used, for instance, with the, uh, the, the breaking of the fish and the bread and the feeding of the 5,000, that, that you know, they had so much left over, spilling over. So Paul says, as these sufferings spill over toward us, so does the encouragement. At every point, the encouragement matches the volume of the suffering. Does that make sense? So, in other words, he's praising God because God is always there, always there to meet the need. Look at verse 6. Now, whether we are afflicted is for your encouragement and salvation, or if we experience encouragement that follows the affliction, both result in your encouragement, which is at work as you endure the same kinds of sufferings we suffer. So there you go. You, You have a third step. It's normal that Jesus suffered in his ministry. It's normal then that Christ-following ministers who are really living out authentic ministry suffer. It's also going to be normal that, therefore, congregations who are really following Jesus are going to, are going to find, you know, things are hard at times when you bump up against the values of the world. So your ministry, obviously, one of the main aspects of your ministry and my ministry is to train people how to live devoutly in following the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a world that's not easy and walking with them in the midst of these difficulties rather than giving the impression that Christianity is going to be something that's going to solve all your problems. That's a, that's a lovely form of American Christianity. That sells really well. But it's just not biblical. So that what we what we want to do is to treat, teach people how to winsomely live in the midst of things being difficult at times. Right now with my kids, I have a, uh, my daughter, but I also have my son who is an engineer. Uh, he's working in his first year as an engineer, graduated from Union last year. And one of the things we've been talking about, I said, look, as you go out there into, into the corporate world, uh, as you're doing interviews and this kind of stuff, 
things are going to come up at times where some people are not going to like the fact that you're a devout Christian. I mean, you might not. Even, you, there might be times you don't get a job because they just don't like where you're coming from. And you just need to kind of be ready to think through how are you winsomely going to uh, bear witness to the gospel in those kinds of situations. So Paul says uh, to the Corinthians that all of this is good because you have a trickle-down effect of this encouragement that, uh, that comes. And um, look at verse 7. Indeed, our hope for you is resolute, knowing that as you experience our, uh, as you share our experience of suffering, so also you share our experience of encouragement. Now, verse 8. He turns with verses 8 through 11 to his recent uh, experience, his recent experience. And I want us to kind of wrap up uh, this movement of our uh, time together by talking through and thinking about Paul's recent experiences. Uh, look at verse 8 again. Now, brothers and sisters, now let me explain um, the word that is translated uh, there is Adelphos. Adelphos is the normal word that we translate as brothers. Uh, it's entirely appropriate to translate it that way. Uh, the reason why I translate Adelphos with brothers and sisters is because in the ancient world, in a religious context, that word was often used to refer to everybody in the room in the church. If you go back, you look at Philippians, uh, other places like 1 John, the language that he's using there when he addresses the Adelphoi, the brothers, he obviously is not just talking about the men in the congregation, okay? So in the, in the ancient world, this word could be used to refer to everybody in the church, everybody who's present in the church, men and women. It was used of women who were devout believers of some kind in the ancient world. So contextually, given that context, it's more accurate to, to just remind ourselves that Paul's addressing all the believers here, not just the men. Because in our cultural context, if I came in this morning and I said, okay, let me ask all the brothers to stand, then who would stand up? Well, all, all the men would, right? So in our cultural context, we commonly use this term brothers appropriately to mean the men in the room. So, again, Paul's not using Adelphoi that way. He's using it to speak of brothers and the sisters. So that's the reason for that translation, in case you were wondering um, at that point. So he, he says, I, I, I want you to know about something. The, the, the way this word could be um, translated could have to do with informing them about something they did not know. So some of your translations read, I don't want you to be ignorant about my situation, that's a, that's a good translation. But the word could also be used with the nuance that I don't want you to take this situation lightly. So that they had kind of heard about it, but they weren't really tuned in to the significance of it. So that term can be used to uh, mean uh, this situation that I experienced in Asia, I, his idea, the sense of it is, I want you to, to really take this seriously and think about the implications of it. That's what he's saying. All right? He's not just saying, let me give you some information. He's saying, I want you to think about this and grapple with what I have been going through. He says, we were oppressed to 
an extraordinary degree. We were oppressed to an extraordinary degree. This was an extraordinary affliction. Now, when you go and you read the list of Paul's afflictions later in the book, chapter 6, chapter 11, uh, when you go and you, you read what Paul had gone through, and he's saying, okay, this situation was abnormal. It, it was a higher degree. This was more intense, more severe. And then he tells us exactly why it was more severe. It happened in Asia. Asia was a, a Roman senatorial province. Probably he's referring to his time in Ephesus, that this happened while he was there. We don't know. He doesn't tell us what it was. There are three main views of what Paul had experienced in terms of this affliction or this tribulation. Let me give you those and then tell you uh, which one I think it may be. Uh, First, some have suggested this was psychological, that, that Paul is under such great stress, such great duress because of his situation with the Corinthians that he felt like he was going to die. Now, I, I hope that you haven't been in that place before. Uh, back when I uh, graduated from university, I went through a, a brief time of very, very deep depression. And I literally thought I was going to die before the end of the summer. I mean, literally. I'm not speaking metaphorically there. I, I literally thought I was going to die. And when you're in that kind of place, psychologically, it affects you physically. And so some people think Paul was just in, in a dark, dark place psychologically. But there's a problem with this uh, when he talks about the sentence of death uh, in verse 9. Um, it seems that he, he could be talking about this affliction that we had within ourselves. Could be psychological, but I don't think the language here really fits just a psychological situation. It seems to be something that's more external. So a second um, suggestion has been physical illness, that maybe Paul was sick. Uh, We know that Paul struggled with physical illness at times. Uh, This has been a bit more popular with uh, some modern commentators. When he says that we were oppressed, that is a term that could be used of somebody who was deathly ill. That, that the illness was just ravaging their bodily situation. But like the psychological position, um, there are some problems with this. Um, and we don't have time to go into to those problems. I think the best view here is that persecution is probably what he was actually struggling with. Paul's affliction in Asia refers to some kind of severe persecution, perhaps mob violence or an imprisonment that Paul thought would lead to his death. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, he talks about fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus. That could be an allusion to the same kind of thing, but this seems to be more recent, you know, just something he's very recently gone through. Uh, we don't have anything in Acts that records this level of persecution as Paul is in Ephesus and then as he leaves Ephesus. But what Luke often does in Acts is he he does what is called telescoping. He takes lots of events and kind of gets them down to keep the narrative moving really smoothly forward. And it may be that he just didn't feel like it was necessary to go into detail 
about Paul's persecution at that point. So I think that the affliction probably is some form of persecution. Um, One of the church fathers, Ambrosi Astor, in his commentary on Paul's epistles, says this. Paul means that there were such was such a violent upsurge of evil against preachers of the faith that death was staring them in the face. Their affliction was so great that they would not have withstood it if God had not been with them. So in the midst of that, he was he was emotionally overwhelmed and impressed. He thought he felt like he was going to die. He felt like um, he, he, he may have been staring death in the face. Uh, in the face. <clears throat> in fact, he says what happened was this situation pushed him to the point that he was forced to trust God and not himself. And that's really the point that he's wanting to make. That the point of this affliction, the intensity of the affliction is he was disabused of the idea that he had something to offer the situation. His back was against the wall. He was at a place where he had to just let go and completely trust the Lord. Look at verse 9. He says, Yet we ourselves had this verdict of death in ourselves in order that we might not trust in ourselves, but rather in God who raises the dead. So he had been brought to that place where you have close friends uh, in Jackson who um, are, are dear to us. They've come off of the mission field. Um, you can pray for uh, our friend Holly. We found out Friday that Holly has ovarian cancer. She has a, a tumor that's, I think, about the size of a lemon and another, I think, more than one tumor. And so she's about to go through three weeks of chemotherapy And then they're going to have uh, surgery to remove uh, the cancer. Pray. But this kind of situation, what, what does it do? What does it do? It pushes us back against the wall. Forces us to deal with reality with a capital R. And it, it brings us to the place of what are we really trusting in life? It becomes a life and death kind of situation. Paul says this was very, very... Um, productive and effective because it brought me to a place where I could no longer trust myself. Um, Dorothy Sayers says, said this um, about suffering in the Christian life. <clears throat> she said, In ordinary, ordinary times we get along surprisingly well on the whole without ever discovering what our faith really is. If now and again this remote and academic problem is so unmannerly as to thrust its way into our minds, there are plenty of things that, can do, uh, that we can do to drive the intruder away. But to us, she's writing in wartime, Second World War, in wartime, cut off from mental distractions by restrictions and blackouts and cowering in a cellar with a gas mask under threat of imminent death, comes in stronger and fear sits down beside us. What, he demands, rather disagreeably, do you make of all this? What do you believe? 
Is your faith a comfort to you under the present circumstances? You see what she's saying? That the real harsh difficulties that we face are a gift. Because what they do is they clear all the clutter and the distractions and the things in which we can inoculate ourselves against pain. And they clear them all away so it's us, it's us and the Lord and the situation. And it's, it brings us to the question, do I really believe this stuff? Is it real to me? Barnett, in his wonderful commentary on 2 Corinthians, says, Christian discipline means for an apostle and for the church as a whole a progressive weakening of man's instinctive self-confidence and of the self-despair to which this leads and the growth of radical confidence in God. And that only goes forward as we face challenges and difficulties. So Paul's point is that his situation in Asia turned out to be a great gift because he was brought to a place of resting in God, trusting Him. He rescued us out of such horrible brushes of death and He will rescue us. That is, we have placed our hope in Him that He also will deliver us in the future as the need arises. You also joining in helping us through prayer. So notice that what he did, what he does here is he moves and he talks about, kind of gotten behind in my slides, sorry about that. He talks about the purpose of the affliction, he talks about God's deliverance, but then notice the last thing he does is he draws in the Corinthians. Think about how strategic this is for what he's doing in the letter. He draws in the Corinthians. To say, come on, be a partner with me as you pray for me and God brings about the deliverance, then he is going to have amazing glory through this situation as we're doing this together. And so he calls them into this prayer partnership with him in a way that is very, very strategic. Um, It's very hard to pray for somebody that you're really being ugly toward. I mean to pray for them, not pray at them, but pray for them. And so he's drawing them in strategically to get them to walk side by side with him in prayer in order to have them join him in this difficult moment rather than opposing him. Now let me close this session with this, with this thought. If you and I are to live effectively for Christ in this world of swirling, striking, sometimes debilitating forces. And if we're going to lead others in our ministries to influence and to have an impact for the gospel, we must come to grips with the objective reality of the limits of our resources as human beings and confront the concomitant despair head on. We can no more master certain forces in this fallen world under our own power than we can leap over the Himalayas or swim from Hawaii to Hong Kong. For Christ followers, the lesson in which we confront the grim realities of our limitations constitutes a special, though often oddly wrapped, gift from God. For we are introduced to despair, which in turn introduces us to a greater dependence on God Himself. 
um, graduated from Southwestern Seminary uh, in Fort Worth and met my wife there. And she came through with this group of amazingly godly young women. And one of the young women was named Sid. And Sid uh, went on to become a uh, worker with Babs Global Response and other ministries overseas and ended up working in Afghanistan. And she was working with women in a profoundly Muslim culture, trying to help them get skills where they could start helping support their families. Sid uh, made the decision to not have a bodyguard because she said if she had had a bodyguard in that situation, it would have closed down the reaching of these women. And she was reaching a lot of women in this ministry. And one day she was uh, kidnapped on the street with her driver and uh, Sid was, was killed in the cause of Christ. And it's interesting that coming up to that time, she even told some co-workers, she said, I think this might be coming. I just as my prayer as I meet with the Lord, I think this might be coming. She said, but no, my heart is at peace. And she was taken and she was martyred in that situation. I had another friend from seminary named Enos Westwall who was also martyred, uh, I think it was last year or the year before last, in Africa by Muslim extremists. And to live out that kind of ministry, you've got to be clear that you're serving a God who raises the dead. N.T. Wright says, We are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on God who raises the dead. That's the God that we serve. That's why we can have joy in the midst of our challenges and our sufferings because God is so amazing. He can resurrect out of the normal sufferings that we face too. He can resurrect and bring to life fruit, closeness to him, maturity, and productivity for the gospel. Isn't that a great thing that we serve a God that no matter the circumstances we face, that he redeems them, whatever they are, and turns them to our good and his glory. Let's pray, and we're going to have a break and then have a time of lunch together. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for these dear uh, folks who are here. Thank you for the various ministries that they carry out on a daily basis. And I pray for them that you would give them strong encouragement through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give them uh, kind of a reinforcement in their own hearts today through just encountering the little bit of 2 Corinthians that we're going to be able to experience. Lord, I pray that you would, in our sufferings, help us not to become bitter. Help us not to lose perspective. Help us, Lord, help us in the community of faith to keep our focus on you and continue to praise you and bless you and draw closer to you as you redeem those circumstances and turn them inside out. We pray, O God, that you would be glorified in this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.